0: Will Donald Trump run in 2020? Our new slogan for 2020, you know what it is? Keep America great. And if so, who will run against him? I'm Bernie Sanders. I'm running for president.
1: I am a candidate for president of... I stand before you today to announce my candidacy.
2: I am seriously thinking of running for president. And I honest to
0: God, I haven't
2: made up my mind.
1: In I believe in this country.
0: Should Labour MPs vote for Theresa May's Brexit deal? And if they don't, should the Conservative Party slam the brakes on a no-deal Brexit?
3: Who is in charge? Who's running Britain? Is it the Prime Minister or is it the Honourable Member for North East Somerset?
0: These are some of the big questions facing political parties in the US and the UK this year, but wound up in all of those questions is the internal politics of political parties.
4: We have all now resigned from the Labour Party. So you've met the
3: Magnificent Seven. You probably heard last night about the Lone Ranger. So I guess that makes us
0: the three amigos. And I'm very sad at people who've left our party. I really am.
3: Welcome back to Polarised, the podcast that's all about the big divides in our culture and our politics and how to fix them. It's presented by Matthew Taylor and by me, Ian Leslie. This week, we're putting political parties in the
2: spotlight. If you reduce the entry costing to political parties, it sounds democratic, but what you're really doing is making them vulnerable to hostile takeovers.
4: It isn't left versus right. It's a very real frustration of top versus bottom.
0: Coming up, we'll hear an interview I did with Ian Shapiro from Yale Universities, one of the co-authors of a book called Responsible Parties, Saving Democracy From Itself. And after we hear him saying that a big problem is the way in which parties have been captured by the activists, we'll be talking to Nassim Thompson and Isra Allison, who are the leaders of the campaign that first persuaded Alexandra acacia cortez to run for office. And they have a, as you'll hear, very different view. But before that, we like to start these episodes with our regular full disclosure segment so you have some idea of where we're coming from, what our assumptions are before we dive into each episode's topic. So, Ian, when it comes to – well, first of all, have you ever been a member of a political party?
3: I was a member of the Labour Party for for a while and then uh, I I dropped out, Not, not through some great ideological objection, but I just sort of stopped. My subscription dropped out for some reason. and, and, um, do you, and but do I'm you, not really a party joiner. I'm not really a kind of uh, – I'm not really a team player. I'm not really a partisan kind of uh, this is my side. and So I'm not a natural kind of party person.
0: And, and do you think that a lot of what's going wrong at the moment with politics is to do with the fact that our political system is controlled by parties, which are increasingly kind of odd, unrepresentative, kind of internally – Visceral kind of organisation.
3: Well, yeah, I mean they're bound to be because they've been around for a long time. Um, the the real problem is that they were formed for for very different times, and we're finally getting to the stage now where they're they're really kind of starting to crack apart on, under the pressure of historical change and, and that, uh, there are big historical forces all converged on this question of brexit and uh, that are really kind of smashing apart the way that we've arranged our parties.
0: and, and parties, Republicans, Democrats, labor conservative they've always been broad alliances but it looks as though in the modern world those broad alliances are increasingly difficult to sustain. So I caught up with one of the authors of a new book which is about these kinds of questions Ian Shapiro. While he was in London in December, and it just so happened, we were speaking on one of the more tumultuous days in British politics. So, when we do interviews for Polarized, um, my producer James is sitting next to me. He 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 does a thing that producers often want to do, which is to not to date the conversation in a sense, so that even if we record it now and it's uh, not broadcast for three weeks, listeners don't realise it's three weeks old. But we're going to break that rule now because you're listening to this. Uh, at some point in 2019, or who knows, maybe we're listening to it in, in in 150 years' time, because it's a critical part of understanding the history of the human race. But anyway, I want you to know exactly when this interview is being recorded. It's being recorded on the day, what is the date today?
4: Uh, the 12th of the December. The 12th of
0: December, thank you, and it's being recorded on the 12th of December. And as I sit here, I don't know whether Theresa May is going to successfully defend herself in the Vote of Confidence Uh, that has been organised by the Conservative Party that's taking place at nine o'clock this evening. At the moment, it looks like she will, but who knows what can happen in the next few hours. Now, why do I want you listeners to know that I'm sitting there while this is going on? It's because what is happening now is an example of the way in which the internal dynamics of a political party can have massive ramifications for a political system, for a country, uh, indeed, sometimes uh, for the world. And why is that important point important? It's important because of who I'm sitting opposite. So, Ian, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Ian Shapiro. I teach political science at
2: Yale University, and I'm recently co-author of a book called Responsible Parties,
0: Saving Democracy from Itself. Now, I get the sense that that title, Responsible Parties, was almost kind of ironic, because what you describe in the book quite a lot is parties that aren't terribly responsible in terms of their impact on the world. And you trace that to one thing more than anything else, and that is something which which sounds like a good thing, the democratization of political parties. So tell us your core thesis. So
2: that's exactly right. The core thesis of the book is that in the last three or four decades, in just about every democracy, there's been uh, a growth of voter alienation in response to a variety of factors, which uh, some of them economic, some of them cultural, some of them domestic, some of them international, but they have led voters to turn on their political systems, which they've perceived as increasingly ineffective, and demand decentralizing controls, more direct democracy of parties. But in fact, it makes parties even less accountable and less effective, compounding voter alienation. And we're now actually seeing this playing out in real time with the
0: leadership fight in the Conservative Party. So it seems to me at the heart of um, your thesis uh, is the the distinction between democracy in the public, for the public, which everyone can vote, and the outcome reflects the public as a whole, and democracy in a party, which is democracy of a very particular subset of people, uh, a subset of people who are true believers, and that therefore when parties say we must be democratic, it strengthens the link between the party leader and the activist, but it weakens the link between the party leader and the general public. Is that
2: right? That's exactly correct. So, for example, and we've seen this play out both in, in the Labour Party and with the Tories. In Labour, it was been most dramatic when you saw uh, Jeremy Corbyn, who's very far to the left of the median Labour voter, never mind the median British voter, uh, elected by the membership at large, which tends to be activists and people well to the left of the typical British voter... He had a program which most Labour Party members in Parliament couldn't enact and and then win their seats in their constituencies. So they revolted and they had a parliamentary vote of no confidence in Corbyn of 172 to 40 the summer before last. He was then promptly re-elected by the membership at large. Mm-hmm. Um, by, under, the, under the banner of
0: democracy, under uh, the banner of party democracy. Yeah,
2: under, by uh, uh, 62%. So there you you have—and if you imagine Labor stumbling into office, which they might do because the the Tories are self-destructing, and imagine uh, Corbyn trying to govern with a cabinet drawn from the back benches of the parliamentary Labor Party, it will be what— uh, we call a train wreck in the U.S., and I think you call a car crash in the U.K., <laughs> uh, it'll be more dysfunctionality. It'll be almost impossible to whip the backbenches to his leadership, but the kind of person that the backbenches would select will be knocked off uh, by the membership at large.
0: And it's not just, of course, is it, Ian, that the political parties tend not to be representative of the public in terms of their opinions. Not even, as you say, representative of the voters for that party in their opinions, but also they often not very demographically relevant. So, the one thing at least that I party can say is that it's got hundreds of thousands of members because uh, Ed Miliband lowered the entrance fee to, to three pounds and the left organized. The Conservative Party is a rump. I mean, it's, uh, I don't, they don't publish figures, I don't think, very often. Uh, about 100,000, both people think about 100,000 yeah. members, average age probably, you know, well south of 60. So, In terms of our faith in democracy, when young people look at the power of this incredibly unrepresentative group of middle class, Mm -hmm. older people concentrated in particular parts of Britain, and the fact that they are the people, ultimately, who might in the next few weeks choose their, their prime minister, this is very corrosive, isn't it? And
2: indeed, we have precedent for that kind of bad outcome in the Conservative Party because they have not been immune from pressures to democratize leadership selection as as you probably know, they have a system which tries to avoid the 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 sorts of problems that labor has had but so the way it works is the parliamentary party votes until there are two candidates left, and then it's sent to the Tory party membership, mm. as you say, about a hundred thousand people. Uh, this didn't come up last time because in, in the final phases of it, Michael Gove self-destructed and Theresa May was the only person left standing. But go back to 2001 when the contest was between Ian Duncan Smith and Kenneth Clark. Mm. And Ian Duncan Smith uh, was a Thatcherite candidate. We would think of them mm. uh, him as the Euroskeptic uh, today. And Kenneth Clark was the centrist candidate Kenneth Clark was preferred by two-thirds of the parliamentary conservative party, but Duncan Smith was was elected by uh, over 60 percent of the Tory party membership. Again, this mm-hmm. sounds democratic, but actually it's a, a more activist group. That's Welch's right of the conservative party generally. They then had two horrific years of conflict in parliament, and eventually, I, I don't know if you recall, he was eventually forced out. Yeah, he, didn't even
0: an, he didn't even fight an election. And, in,
2: and they were so demoralized that actually nobody wanted to be leader, and they finally dragooned Michael Howard into the job when he didn't want it. So, so the Tories are not immune from this as well. No,
0: it's a, it's a general theme, and mm-hmm. a couple of the things I want to explore. I didn't realize till I, read, till I read your book that the whole primary system in America is a relatively recent Phenomenon. So that example of engagement of activists, how has that changed American politics? So
2: it's it's so yeah, it's relatively recent in presidential politics, but not in the legislature. But it's become right. much more important in the legislature. So the primaries have really only become important in presidential politics since 1968. We've had primaries for Congress for over a hundred years, which of course
0: was another year of great polarization. 1968. absolutely,
2: and so what you have, what you, sh- you you have when you have exactly that's exactly right. The this was the Vietnam War, it was all of that, and which produced demands for more democracy in the first in the Democratic Party and then the Republicans. So, for uh, people
0: who don't recall, because this is is relevant to this, the Democratic Convention in nineteen sixty eight was just a massive riot.
2: It was a massive riot because Hubert Humphrey was picked as the candidate by the party grandees, and all the anti-war demonstrators really wanted any anti-war candidate. Right. So um, thus
0: the cry goes up for more democracy.
2: More democracy, and so there were big reforms, first into the Democrats, uh, reintroducing primaries, and then the Republicans copied them, and now we have we have primaries of one sort or another in all the states.
0: So you then get an outcome like Trump, which is... Very
2: similar to what we've been talking about here. You have very low turnout in the primaries tends to be the people on the extremes of the parties so Trump was actually picked by less than 5% of the US electorate as the as the candidate for the Republican Party in the legislature similar problem slightly different history because we've although we've had primaries since the progressive era at the beginning of the 20th century What we've got now, because of gerrymandering and redistricting and demographic moves, more than 90% of the seats in Congress are safe seats. And that means that the only election that matters now is the primary Mm -hmm. in all of those seats. And so, again, you're going to find that people on the extremes of the parties pick the candidate who wins the primary, and then they go to Congress. And again, you have exactly the same kind of conflict between um, what the people who are pushing these candidates in the primaries want and what most Americans want. And so you get gridlock and you get people saying that the system is dysfunctional. Voters must be given more democratic control.
0: Oh, yeah, so it goes around. I mean, and this it's is, a vicious cycle, yeah. Because I think underlying this is uh, this paradox which is that democracy is undermined by the the fact that it is so easy for people to appeal to the principle of democracy to win popularity. So actually quite a lot of it hasn't really been driven by grassroots demand. It's been driven by candidates wanting to win office Exactly Saying, right. part of my mandate is democratization in a, in a kind of thoughtless way. Another way of putting it is if you
2: reduce the entry costs into political parties, it sounds democratic, but what you're really doing is making them vulnerable to hostile takeovers. This is what the Tea Party have done with the Republicans in the US. They have essentially used the primary system to mount a hostile takeover of the party. Um,
0: so, if po- so if polarization is, is being driven by the internal dynamics of parties, by this Mm -hmm. democratization process, your book, one of the things it implies is that we have to have the courage to say, no, less democracy, thank you. That's so kind of, it feels so counterintuitive in the modern world. So I would put it a little
2: differently. It's not that we want less democracy. It's that we want the right kind of democracy. We're all for democratic competition. But uh, the best kind of democratic competition is programmatic competition between parties. Uh, The left of center party and the right of center party defend a program, run on it, and if they win, they will implement it, like Labor did in 1945 when they put in many popular reforms, such as the National Health Service, still more popular Mm. than the Queen, and so forth. That's good competition, programmatic competition. Intra-party competition is generally not good competition because it, it tends to lead to what political scientists refer to as clientelism, paying off different groups, letting different groups extract rents, if you like, from the party, or advance narrow agendas. Anything that will strengthen programmatic competition for which you need strong parties that can put together programs that they could actually run on and win on and implement if elected and so be held accountable, that's the right kind of democracy. So strengthening parties is not intended to make the system less democratic. It's Rather, it's to have the democratic competition actually be over the ideas that are going to be implemented by the government if the party wins. So we're saying what we want is more accountable government and uh, less... Uh, participation and representation of unrepresentative groups in the democratic process.
0: Part of what we need, just to, just to finish, what, what we need, it seems to me, is leaders with the self-confidence and the emotional intelligence, honesty, to say to their party, look, I'll always listen to you. You're my activists. Uh, we, we, we share a view of the world. I'll always listen to you, but I won't ever promise to do what you tell me to do because I have to appeal to the country I have to run the country if we get into power and it would be wrong of me to say and the public would not accept it were I to say that I will just do whatever you tell me because you happen to be a members of my party I, I, I believe that is exactly what people should say I just find it hard to imagine the kind of uh, leaders who would have the courage to say that?
2: Well, it it is partly a matter of individual leadership and courage. You know, Clement Attlee had exactly that kind of courage, for example, um, in the Labour Party. But it's not just a matter of, of courage and leadership. It's it's that we have... in country after country enacted reforms that make it harder for them to do that and survive. Mm. You know, politicians, for the most part, respond to the incentives in front of them. And we have changed the system of incentives that forces them to essentially be strung out between these activist memberships on the one hand and the backbenches in parliament on the other who can't operate on the same team pulling in the same direction. And that's very bad for the health of democratic politics.
0: So thank you. In your book, Responsible Parties, is I'd recommend it to anybody. Not only is it fascinating about these questions, but there's lots of interesting kind of history in it as well. And you will certainly come out of it, as I did, with a slightly different perspective on why it is our politics seems to drive us apart rather than pulling us together. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.
2: Now to a stunning political upset in a working class congressional district in New York. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, a former bartender. This is about
4: justice and this is about the America that we are going to bring into this world. Thank you all very, very much. I'm so proud of you all.
3: We're joined on the line by Isra Allison, executive director of the brand new Congress campaign. Hello, Isra. Hello. Also joining us is Naseem Thompson of the Justice Democrats. Hello, Naseem. Hello. Thank you very much for joining us. We we need to just talk a, a little bit about a certain American politician who's made waves, not just in the US, but in the UK and, and other countries too. Can we just talk about Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, just so our listeners, uh, in case any of them have been living under a rock, know who she is. She's the new congresswoman for New York's 14th congressional district, and she beat an incumbent Democrat in, in the primary and then one uh, in the general in, in November. And she is a real uh, political star, hugely charismatic, uh, brilliant uh, communicator, uh, and already talked about as a, a possible future president. And I understand that you, uh, Isra, had something to do with her, her rise. Is that is that true?
1: Well, we all had something to do with it. Um, so Nassim and I were, you know, basically on the same page. You know, we when we solicited nominations back in 2016, um, Alexandria's brother actually nominated her and she was a part of our pool of, of nominations. I, I did give her a call, um, asked her to, to hop on a call with me to have an interview just to get a little bit of a background story about what she stood for and really asking her the question if she would accept you know, the nomination, if she'd like to go further on this journey with us through many conversations, through through training. Um, you know, she actually came to some of our weekend summits that we conducted with other candidates. She really became a part of our coalition and helped to even train other candidates as we were basically going over policy, you know, talking points, learning about what it's like to be a candidate and really running a grassroots campaign.
3: Can you just tell us a bit about how you got started and, and what you do so, so that our listeners understand where you're coming from?
1: Sure. Sure. Um, We started back in uh, 2016, April of 2016, and many of us came from the Bernie Sanders movement. Um, I myself was a volunteer with uh, Bernie Sanders Grassroots Organization in Charlotte, North Carolina, and uh, many of us were working as volunteers on the campaign, and some of them were staff members as well. Uh, So we started uh, by sort of reaching out to the people that we worked with on the ground, pitching this idea of a brand new Congress, Uh, looking to elect regular working people for U.S. Congress in the midterm elections in 2018. And so we started by just building up that network, uh, by reaching out to those folks, actually conducting a lot of in-person campaign events. Basically, we called it a 100-city tour, where we went around the country and talking to people about this idea, and really soliciting nominations for people that they know in their community that may be a good fit for our slate. And then right around November of 2016, obviously, when Trump got elected, we, we saw a huge surge of nominations. And from there, we started to really work directly with, with candidates as they became um, a part of the brain of Congress slate. So that's really sort of the origin story.
3: Wow. OK, thank you, Isra. And uh, Nassim, could you just tell us a bit about the Justice Democrats?
4: Yes, Justice Democrats. uh, The goal of Justice Democrats is to work within the Democratic Party to elect everyday working class Americans uh, to run for Congress at the federal level. So this is the House of Representatives and the Senate. All of the candidates reject corporate PAC and lobbyist money. And they are fierce advocates for working class Americans. So our goal is to recruit uh, compelling candidates who represent the country uh, in terms of their uh, background, lived experience, their racial makeup, gender. And uh, last cycle was our first cycle. And, and, And here we are. And do you give them? This
3: is a question for for uh, both of you, really. And um, do you give them a kind of a vetting in terms of, like, do they have to be in a particular part of the the ideological spectrum uh, uh, of of the of the Democratic Party overall, or do you look for other things first, and then that that kind of is a, a conversation you have later down the line? What's what's the kind of. Gateway.
4: We're, we're looking for both, right? One of the things that we're lacking is the lived experience that informs the decisions that our representatives are making when they are uh, funded by corporate PAC money and they have special interests that are influencing them it is a barrier to representing everyday working class Americans. And so having that criteria and the lived experience of the background is important, but also something that we've seen in the United States with the, with the democratic party is a sort of atrophy in the party. Um, And so there's been a reduction in participation in the process, messaging that's really been watered down and really just a lack of understanding for what the party stands for. And so running on a bold, progressive agenda is critical um, for for Justice Democrats, um, Mm -hmm. for everyone on our slate to to come from a a working class, diverse background and also to be fierce champions, unapologetic champions of these uh, bold, uh, progressive ideals.
3: Just thinking about our own circumstances. In our party of the left, which is the, the Labour Party, as you know, the divisions between the, the wings of the party, the kind of left and, and centre and right of the party, are extremely bitter, right? It's, it, it's, a, really, uh, it's, a, it's a really kind of angry and, and, and bitter uh, argument. Almost there's more kind of fighting that goes on in the party than there is with, with, with the other side. How does that compare with, with the, the Democrats
4: I think that translates over uh, to what we're seeing also uh, in the Democratic Party here in in the states. Uh, You were talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And one line that she says that's critical is that we have so many people in the Democratic caucus. If we can just puncture the silence on issues that are not being spoken about by our representatives, they will all move. And we've seen that. Since she has come to to be a leader, Ilhan Omar uh, and Rashida are the first two Muslim American women um, who were from our slate and are representing. They're not just candidates who have joined this body, but they have shown to really be trailblazers and leaders in thought and messaging and, and planning for what is the identity of this Democratic Party going to be? And if we don't really give muscle to this Democratic Party and make it a party that is for working class Americans, what happens is you see what happened in 2016 where Donald Trump will go to rallies and we hear about his a xenophobic, sexist, racist rhetoric, but he also did have a populist message. And from our perspective, it's a, it's a real vulnerability to have a democratic party that's weak and is not representing working class people, because then we get the Donald Trumps and future Donald Trumps that are currently seated and will be sprouting in the future.
0: So, so this program is, is, is called Polarized, and we're concerned with the evidence of polarization that is all around us and uh, earlier in the program we're playing we played we've played an interview with a guy called Ian Shapiro an academic who argues that part of the process of polarization is to do with the way in which parties have become more democratic more responsive to their uh, grassroots and certainly that's the case here in Britain i mean certainly you couldn't understand the problems of british politics of brexit without recognising that the Conservative Party has been captured by a pretty unrepresentative group of people who are violently anti-European. The Labour Party has been captured by a group of people who are reasonably unrepresentative as kind of full-on socialists. I understand your political position, but I, I, I'm kind of interested, Do you are you concerned about polarisation? Are you concerned about the statistics that suggest, for example, that people's resistance to their children going out with somebody, having a relationship with somebody from the other party, has massively increased? Do you worry about polarisation and does your politics in the end think that polarisation is necessary?
4: Well, no, I I think, especially in the context of this programme being called polarised, I think the question then becomes polarised across which axis And it isn't left versus right. Um, and, And what we found is that there is a growing frustration. It's a very real frustration of top versus bottom. We're seeing that in the United States. We're seeing that across the world. And in our view, if we don't have a productive option for the American people, all the people who are at the bottom, then what are their options? And then we get Donald Trump. And so it is polarized, but I would argue that it's polarized across top versus bottom.
3: Fascinating. Thank you so much, Isra, Alison, Nazim, Thompson. Uh, wonderful to talk to you. And thank you for your time.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
3: So, Matthew, what did you make of that
0: conversation? Yeah, I mean, look, on one level, these are exciting people we spoke to. You know, they are optimistic, they're full of energy. You know, what they're doing to politics, you know, it's exhilarating. It makes me wish I wasn't old and disillusioned, you know. But yeah, on the other hand, I felt that I, you know, and it's a clever ploy in a way, so not am not sound cynical, but to say, well, it's not about left and right, it's first top versus bottom. But it may be about top versus bottom. In the Democratic Party, it's also about left versus right. It's also very clear that they would like to have Sanders or a similarly left wing candidate in the next election, uh, maybe against Trump. And that would be without question, the most polarized election in, you know, American history. It's very difficult to see how you come out of that without a country which is scarred and at war and and in a sense they don't i don't think i don't think they care that much about that do they no
3: i mean in a sense they they buy into the kind of trumpian conception of politics as a as a zero sum game so so trump was really the first president to to say really all this stuff we've been told about how if you have our policies then it's good for everyone the rich people or poor people all boats will will, yeah. will rise he was the first person coming along and say, oh, that's rubbish you know that's wouldn't he use the word rubbish. Or something else. Um, there, there are winners and losers in this game. I, I'm a winner. You want to be on my side, and there are going to be losers, okay? And they are the kind of mirror image. They're saying whether well, it's top versus bottom, and therefore we need to fight back. And it, it, so I, I, this is you know <laughs> bound to make us feel uncomfortable because we've done a whole series about polarization and, and, and its problems. But as you say, that's where the the energy is, and there is certainly a huge amount of of talent, exciting talent, um, going
0: into these ranks. And I guess my reflection on it would be that I'm not, in a sense, I'm less worried about government than I am about politics, in the sense that I think, you know, if they were to get a uh, a genuinely left-wing candidate to stand, and if that genuinely left-wing candidate was to win, I suspect that they would have to run the country and they wouldn't and couldn't be as mad as Trump. And they would probably you know, they would be more radical than Democrats have been in the past. But in the end, the day-to-day exigencies of office would mean that they would probably run the country. Uh, but I think at that point, of course, I wonder how Isra and Nasima are going to feel when the people they've elected to office have to kind of do that. And, you know, you yeah. saw with Obama, to a certain extent, it wasn't nearly as kind of outspokenly left-wing, but was radical. But once he got into office, a level of disillusionment was quite fast. So, I'm not concerned about the kind of person they might get into office, and I'm almost certain I would support their candidate against Trump, but, yeah, but I, I am a bit a big concerned up. about what it means for the politics that goes on after that.
3: It, I agree, and 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 it is important to note that the, the, the Democrats and the Republicans uh, are not symmetrical in their relationship with the political discourse and, and, and with truth. No, that's true. <laughs> you know, and, and and the Democratic candidates, as far as I can see, all the major ones are, you know, creditable, <laughs> you know, candidates. But as you say... There is going to be this disconnect
0: between what they're doing in office if they get there and and what the grassroots want. The obvious thing to say now would be to say it just looks as though you can't mobilise people with moderation, but actually that's not true. I mean, you know, Blair mobilised people, well, bro- mo- people with moderation. Macron, bro, mobilised people with moderation. Obama did it as well. It, 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 so maybe this is just a phase. That, but, but, but I don't know really. I, I, I wonder whether in one of my obsessions about politics in Britain right now. Is leadership, And in a sense, everything looks pretty good. We've never had two-party leaders with combined unpopularity of these two. It's utterly unprecedented. Is that structural? And could it be that just we just need a great new leader to emerge? And actually, a lot of the stuff we're deeply pessimistic and worried about and we think is structural and profound will just fall away because we realise oh, we just haven't had anyone credible to kind of excite us and mobilise us. Maybe it's time for you to step forward. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this
3: episode of Polarised. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell somebody about it. And we'd really appreciate it if you took just a couple of minutes to leave us a rating or a review in your podcast app. It really does help people find us. Polarised was presented by Matthew Taylor and Ian Leslie. The producer was James Shield, and we were brought to you by the RSA.